In a groundbreaking ruling, a court just found that Donald Trump did, in fact, engage in insurrection as defined by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm Jessica Denson, host of Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network, and I'll be joined in just a minute by Donald Sherman, Chief Counsel at Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, where their clients just won that historic ruling in Colorado. This is a major victory for crew in their efforts to disqualify Trump under Section 3, with one preposterous caveat that keeps Trump on the ballot for now. Crew already filed their appeal just last night, so things are moving very quickly. Donald, it's great to have you back again in the wake of this extraordinary news. Congratulations, and welcome back to Lights On. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I really just want to dive into um, the ruling that you just appealed. I know you prevailed, as I mentioned, on that uh, massive factual finding of insurrection, but the judge made a legal finding to, in fact, for now, keep Trump on the ballot, finding that he was not an officer and the presidency was not an office under Section 3. Um, she herself used the word preposterous to um, kind of describe the suggestion that a president could be above the confines of what is outlined in Section 3. Can you kind of just go through that, that ruling? Sure. As you mentioned, our clients uh, prevailed on all of the factual issues necessary in order for us to disqualify former President Trump under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Most importantly, that January 6th and the events leading up to it was an insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and that Donald Trump, by inciting the insurrection, met the standard for engaging in insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In addition, the court found in favor of our plaintiffs on all of the legal issues necessary in order to prevail, except a finding that the president of the United States was uh, is in office of the United of the United States, and the presidency is an office under the United States, uh, which uh, obviously we disagree and we are appealing. But I think the main takeaway here is that for the first time since January sixth, and for only the second time um, after uh, in over 150 years, a court has found that there was an insurrection uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And for the first time ever, a court has ruled that Donald Trump engaged in the January 6th insurrection um, through his words and deeds. Yeah, I think it cannot be overstated. It is an absolutely, um, like, as I mentioned, historic ruling. Uh, it was you were in district court in Colorado and Denver. Um, this 102-page ruling issued by uh, Judge Sarah B. Wallace, and I really want to get to um, the merits of your appeal, actually, and why this is really, um, you know, so ripe for appeal, and and your prospects at the Colorado Supreme Court before it may potentially get to the U.S. Supreme Court. But if we can just focus for a minute on those substantial findings that she found, um, just determining that Trump did, in fact, engage in insurrection. Um, Donald, can you kind of just take us back to that trial? I know you had uh, testimony from D.C. riot police, from, from rally goers, constitutional experts, two members of Congress. Um, what was it like in that courtroom in Colorado? It was 
gripping. Um, as you might imagine, uh, you know, our trial started with uh, opening statements from both lawyers uh, where we were able to lay out in damning detail how uh, Donald Trump fomented the big lie, um, his familiarity and a practice of promoting and praising violence by his followers uh, before uh, the election of 2020. And then after 2020, promoting the big lie and recruiting, mobilizing his his supporters to come to D.C. Uh, with knowledge that, um, you know, there was a likelihood for violence. And then on January 6th, inciting them to violence. Uh, and <clears throat> and uh, as Congressman Eric Swalwell testified, uh, putting a target on the back of the vice president and uh, and the Capitol uh, and multiple times during the day, uh, during his speech in the ellipse where he said that uh, he implored people to march to the Capitol and said that he would march with them. Uh, and then with his tweet on at 2.24 p.m., after the Capitol was under attack and we saw a surge um, of the crowd uh, at that point in time. Uh, and we heard really chilling testimony, especially that first day from three witnesses who were there. Danny Hodges, uh, an officer at MPD, uh, the DC Metropolitan Police Department, who uh, if you've watched any footage of January 6th, you saw uh, was being crushed in the tunnel uh, where the president-elect typically walks out uh, for their inauguration. Uh, Congressman Swalwell, who testified um, about his fear and he, the preparations that he and other members uh, made to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat if necessary in order to uh, survive the attack and being whisked away by security, <clears throat> Capitol Police at the last minute. Um, and then from Winston Panjon, who is a former Capitol Police officer who talked about his experience in two to three hours of hand-to-hand -hand combat against the mob. He's how he saw the mob coming from the cap from the ellipse uh, at the site of Donald Trump's speech to the Capitol uh, and flooding that area, making it unable for uh, law enforcement to really do anything other than to fight for their lives and you know, and try and retreat in order to uh, protect themselves and protect the members of Congress and the proceeding inside. Um, and so that was the first day. Um, and again, you know, it was pretty, you know, and, and I'm, I'm someone who's watched a lot of this footage mm -hmm. many times, but to see Danny's video again, and to talk about his experience, to hear Congressman Swalwell, uh, a man who has uh, a wife and young kids, speak about his fear texting his wife because he didn't want her to be scared for his life as he was in the Capitol and the mob was only feet away. And then Officer Panjan talk about watching his he and his fellow officers be, um, be beaten um, and uh, Winston, in particular, having a a a flagpole thrown at him and just miss his uh, putting his eye out is it, it, having heard it many times in witness prep is still uh, incredibly uh, compelling and just frightening 
to see how close we came to losing our democracy. Um, and that was just day one. Um, <laughs> the next day of our presentation included expert testimony from a range of experts. One, an expert named uh, Peter Simi, a uh, professor uh, who has expertise in political violence, uh, and he teaches at Chapman University in California. He talked about his work engaging and uh, studying right-wing extremists, uh, militia groups like the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and Three Percenters, um, how they communicate, how they understood former President Trump's communications with them, how yeah. the former president built a call and response uh, relationship with his supporters so that when he called for violence on January 6th, both he and they knew that violence was expected, regardless of, you know, how other politicians may use the word fight and how, you know, a lot of polit political activists uh, use the word fight, um, how that practice over many, many years with his supporters demonstrated that he meant a literal fight. Um, and as we saw on January 6th, there was a literal fight uh, following his words uh, at, at the Capitol. And then there was testimony from William Banks, a professor emeritus at Syracuse University, who's a uh, noted national security expert who spoke specifically, who testified specifically about the actions that former President Trump could have taken to quell the insurrection on January 6th. The president's team argued that he had authorized the ten to 20,000 National Guard troops to be available and that but for the, a request from uh, the mayor of D.C. that uh, those resources would have been available to him. Uh, and Professor Banks made clear, one, that if there was such an authorization, there would have been uh, documentation uh, that followed, and there was no indication of any documentation, both in the January 6th report or in the public record anywhere else, um, but also that it was preposterous that the mayor could somehow overrule the President of uh, the United the, States. Yeah, the demand of the President of the United States mm -hmm. to have uh, 10 to 20,000 national security, or I'm sorry, National Guard um, assets deployed. And then finally, uh, we we had expert testimony from Gerard Magliaca, who is one of the two leading experts on Section 3, who has written peer-reviewed research on the subject before, Jan uh, before January 6th and before mm -hmm. Section 3 became popular. Uh, and he testified uh, about the history of Section 3, uh, about how that history informed, um, you know, uh, demonstrated that Section 3 was self-executing, that Section 3 did apply to the president and the presidency as offices under an, an office of the United States, uh, and a number of other uh, legal questions that came uh, within the, uh, that were at issue here. And then finally, uh, there was uh, testimony from Hillary Rudy, uh, a, an official at the Colorado Secretary of State office who testified about the role that the Secretary of State uh, typically plays when they uh, determine or, or put people on the ballot. They're, uh, they're 
inability to investigate the underlying uh, facts, but um, their deference to the courts when there is an evidentiary hearing or an in investigation and examination that um, that provides them clarity about uh, whether a candidate meets constitutional qualifications. And then finally, after um, after the Trump folks put on testimony seeking to undermine the credibility of the January 6th uh, committee report, we uh, we put on testimony from Tim Hafey, who was the uh, chief investigative counsel of the January 6th committee and also uh, a former United States attorney in Virginia, uh, and who testified about the process by which the committee did its work uh, and to its credibility. I'm happy to uh, tell you a bit about um, President Trump's witnesses as well. Um, suffice it to say, um, most of them had no specific details about um, key questions, uh, and the judge found um, much of their testimony either not credible, as in the case of Cash Patel, or not especially relevant, as in the case of Amy Kramer and Tom Bjorklin and uh, <clears throat> and uh, Paul Gosar's uh, chief of staff. I think his name, his last name is Van Flyn. All of whom said that they attended the rally. Um, uh, at the Capitol, but that from their vantage point, such that it was, that it was peaceful. And then uh, the Trump folks put on an expert, um, I'm sorry, somebody that they put forward as an expert uh, named- uh, <laughs> Thank Tim, you for the clarification, Donald. Sure. <laughs> named uh, Tim Delahunty, who uh, admitted that he was not an expert in section three of the 14th Amendment, but uh, purported to be an expert in, um, I think, his historical inter uh, interpretations of the Constitution, um, but uh, it was clear that he could not answer and had not done any scholarship on the most salient questions at issue here. Yeah, um, I, I read something kind of wild that the Trump defense floated. Apparently, this was from their attorney, Scott Gessler, who is a former Secretary of State, a Republican Secretary of State in Colorado, that he compared the January 6th rioters' relationship to Trump to John Hinckley's relationship to Jodie Foster. As a reminder, John Hinckley was Jodie Foster's stalker. And he said, this is like the, the relationship between a stalker and a victim. In this case, Donald Trump being the victim of his January 6th rioters, the stalkers. Uh, ludicrous, ludicrous uh, comparisons. Um, as we're discussing, I, they, they lost. <laughs> I, thought the, I thought the reference that was most interesting was the one that preceded that, which was um, a reference to Dumb and Dumber. Um, which he made at trial with Professor Simi, uh, who hadn't seen the movie and didn't particularly land well. And then he doubled back to it during his closing, which I thought was especially interesting, right before he made the uh, the Jodie Foster Hinckley reference. Yeah, I read that one too, that something about, you know, uh, dreaming about a woman, but the woman being out of your reach. And I mean, it just, it, it didn't work, it didn't work. <laughs> But Donald, um, you guys prevailed so significantly here. And I thought, um, first of all, we should mention that this is the first case that actually got to the merits of whether Section 3 applied to Donald Trump. Other cases brought in Michigan and Minnesota um, didn't get there. They were, they were um, not 
reviewed in that way before they were dismissed. I know that Free Speech for the People, the other group that um, brought the case, I believe in Michigan is appealing that. The other one just applied to the primary ballot. So it's still um, it's still right for a new challenge on the on the general election ballot. But you have been exceptionally successful here, not just in having the merits reviewed, but um, what I thought especially was in having this free speech defense debunked. Um, Judge Wallace um, went into the Brandenburg standard and how um, under the Brandon, under Brandenburg, the inquiry is whether the speech at issue one was intended to produce and two likely p- to produce imminent disorder. And I just wanted to read this quote because you're talking about the ellipse speech and how you had all those witnesses discuss um, the connection between his language and the actions at the Capitol. And she wrote, The quote, whole record here consists of more than just the ellipse speech and more than just the plain language used. Ultimately, all language at its core is at its core a system of signals, whether through sounds, symbols, or otherwise, designed to convey meaning from a speaker to an audience. An inquiry into a speaker's intent can appropriately probe what the speaker understands or knows about how his audience will perceive his speech. This is not an inquiry into the reaction of the audience, but rather asks whether and in what way the speaker knows how his choice of language will be understood and therefore what he intends his speech to mean as evidenced by use of his language. And, um, you know, as you're describing, it's so clear that Donald Trump knew this relationship that he had with his audience and what he was inciting them to do on January 6th. Um, Donald, I think this this finding is so significant, not just for your case right here, but for the criminal cases, for any cases involving Donald Trump where he may raise this free speech defense. It was just largely debunked here. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, we spend a lot of time um, making the case um, that Donald Trump was aware of the impact that his words were having on his supporters. And there was evidence from that from numerous speeches that he had given and statements that he had made in response to them, praising violence that occurred, equivocating. Uh, or or declining to denounce violence uh, when pressed and sending pretty explicit signals to uh, and getting responses back from uh, right wing extremists that violence was welcome, encouraged, and uh, and on January six would be necessary in order to accomplish the former president's goal of disrupting and obstructing the the certification of ballots that was going on in the Capitol. We believe that um, we believe that his uh, his words and deeds uh, on January 6th satisfy the Brandenburg test uh, if it if it was to be applied. Uh, Judge Wallace chose to apply it. Um, and and ruled in our favor on that point. Um, I'd also just want to, uh, circling back to your earlier point, uh, it does get missed that it took quite a lot of time, effort, attention to get to a trial in the first place. We're able to succeed on four motions to dismiss um, 
and then a Hail Mary uh, motion to stay the case at the Colorado Supreme Court. So it was clear that uh, former President Trump's team was fighting tooth and nail to avoid getting to trial. And then despite uh, the decision on Friday, as the president was beating his chest on Saturday, uh, claiming a gigantic victory, his team was working furiously to file a notice of appeal on 11 separate issues uh, on Monday. So I'm not sure that that feels uh, or looks uh, like the kind of victory that uh, the former president was crowing about. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll, they've they've asked for additional words uh, and additional time to submit their actual brief, um, which suggests to me that maybe um, it wasn't the victory that uh, that their client suggested it was. Clearly was not. Spin aside, it clearly was a massive failure. Um, I really want to get into that appeal with you, Donald. Uh, I, like, I mean, let's just go back to the language of Section 3. It says, no, pers no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, I'm sorry, legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the same or give given aid or comfort to the enemies thereto. Now, of course, you prevailed on that latter part, but your judge got hung up on the definition of office and officer. She distinguished between um, the concept of supporting the Constitution, as Section 3 mentions, and protecting, defending, and upholding the Constitution, which is a presidential oath, although the definition of support is to defend and protect. Um, can you please uh, walk us through why you see so clearly um, a path to victory in this appeal and what, what the merits of that appeal are? Sure. Um, so unlike the former president, um, our appeal focuses on the sole issue of whether Section 3 uh, applies to the president and the presidency. Um, and, you know, with as with any constitutional analysis, you start with the text. And the text seems quite clear. The president is an office. Um, the Constitution refers to the president and the presidency as an office no less than 25 times. The oath of office uh, for the president, which is enshrined in Article 2, refers to it as the office. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, just reading the text, uh, it seems clear that. Uh, the president is an office under the United States and an officer of the United States. Um, but then you uh, and then you look at the historical record, which uh, Professor Magliaca, um testified about extensively. We have already had amicus briefs submitted in this case from uh, Professor Mark Graber, who's the other expert who has studied these issues before January six or before January six happened. Um, you know, reaching the same conclusion. Um, and um, and so the historical record is quite clear as well. Um, but then you, you sort of take a step back and uh, you think about this from 
uh, common sense perspective, which is, um, you know, one of the canons by which we interpret, uh, we are meant to interpret the Constitution. The Constitution is supposed to make sense to regular people. And uh, you, you, you're left with how could it make sense that senators, members of Congress, um, and electors for president come within the ambit of Section 3, but not the president him or herself? Uh, if if the framers of Section 3 thought it was important to include electors uh, for president as a safeguard to ensure that a president uh, uh, or an insurrectionist like Jefferson Davis, for example, um, did not become president, how could they have uh, possibly omitted uh, the president of the United States uh, from falling under that provision as well. I think the history makes clear that the um, senators believed, uh, or that Congress believed, that the President of the United States was included within that language uh, referring to any officer, but also that there was a specific concern about ensuring that insurrectionists like Jefferson Davis could not become president. And so, you know, I, I think uh, a couple of things should be said. One, Judge Wallace, Judge Wallace throughout this process um, was remarkably at attentive and really diligent. And unlike a lot of judges who have had cases in other jurisdictions on this issue, did not shy away from um, you know reaching the merits and examining um, the facts and the law. Um, we believe uh, that she got this issue uh, incorrect, and we are. Uh, that's why we are appealing. Um, but, you know, also because there's so much briefing on so many issues, you know, I think it's fair to say that we are able to brief this issue much more thoroughly on appeal than perhaps we were able to at the trial level. And so we certainly look forward to um to the Colorado Supreme Court's consideration of our briefs and are preparing for oral argument on that um, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and as I understand, um, you've asked, you've reminded the court that the ballot's going to be certified by January 5th, or is supposed to be certified by January 5th, if I'm not mistaken. So you are asking right. the courts to move this process along very quickly. That's right. And under the election uh, code uh, that our uh, that our client's lawsuit arises from um, you know Colorado law requires um, expedited uh, procedures and so you know there are certainly questions of Colorado state law that I believe that um, that the former president is appealing uh, as well we won on those issues and it, it's vindication for um, why Colorado was uh, a good place to bring litigation like this. Um, but yeah, the, the election statute requires that these issues be resolved quickly so that ballots can be printed on time and so that um, that Colorado voters have clarity on which candidates are eligible and that all eligible candidates are on the ballot uh, in time for the primary. Absolutely. Um and I again, I just want to congratulate you on on this 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 victory in steps. I too have been part of lit litigation against Trump, where my victories have come in stages. And um, you know, as much as you may want a full victory right off the bat, sometimes those building blocks are 
hugely beneficial in the long run. Um, and so I, I, as I've said repeatedly, I don't think you can overstate the significance of this. Can you just leave us with a final note, Donald, on um, why this is not election interference, why it really is the duty of the courts and those who are empowered to enforce and interpret Section 3 to apply it in this moment and um, not look back down the road and say, that was our opportunity to prevent a dictator from taking office again? <laughs> sure. First, I would say the Constitution is the bedrock of our democracy. And so the notion that uh, enforcing the Constitution against individuals who violate it is anti-democratic just doesn't compute. Now, Donald Trump has used this excuse time and time again, but you know it should be noted that he's the one that has suggested canceling the, the Constitution um, because he is threatened by it and because he thinks that he's above it. And, and, and on a number of occasions, he has suggested that, you know, he should be treated differently because he happens to be a popular candidate in one political party uh, for office. But if the Constitution makes, uh, and if our framers have made anything clear, it's that a, a candidate's popularity does not trump the Constitution. If that were the case, then Donald Trump would not have become president in the first place. So, you know, the idea that because he is popular, uh, in his party, and maybe popular among the electorate, that he should get um, a pass uh, is is anti-democratic and is dangerous. You know, the Constitution should apply to bar someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's not a natural-born citizen, from running for president. It should apply to former presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Um, because the 22nd Amendment bars them from uh, running for president. Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection through his words and conduct on, on and before January 6th. Now we have a court opinion that reaches that finding. The Constitution says quite clearly he cannot be president again. And if we are to be a democracy, then the Constitution has to abide especially when the stakes are highest. You know, we, we, don't have, we, we don't have courts in the Constitution for easy questions. We have them for hard questions with high stakes. And just because the stakes are high here does not mean that the Constitution doesn't apply. Beautifully stated, Donald. Thank you very much for that clarity. Yes. The courts are there to make the hard decisions and we need them to make them. Thank you again so much for joining me today. I encourage our viewers and listeners to go to citizensforethics.org to read both that ruling in full and the appeal that you just filed. Um, we will definitely be watching the case and uh, can't wait to have you back to give us the next update. Thank you so much and happy holidays. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a wonderful day.